morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Trevor. If I haven't already introduced myself, I'm the lead pastor here at Risen, and we are in the Gospel of John together. How's that sound? You guys excited about John this morning? I'm very excited about John this morning. All right, if you have a Bible, would you open up to John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16? While you are opening John 19, 1 through 16, um, if you don't know Greg Bolin, you should know him. He was up here standing. He's a missionary, given his life to training missionaries, being a missionary, reaching out to the Muslim world. And so he'll be hanging around, and please get to know him. Supporting our church is how we support missionaries like Greg, and Greg and Jeanette have done fantastic work. So uh, we love them and support them. Um, all right, I, I really am excited to preach this morning and to be in John chapter 19. Uh, we're going to read the whole story, or at least any of these 16 verses. We'll, we'll, we'll walk through the forest, and then we'll stop and look at the trees. I, gotta, I, gotta, I just am always, when anytime we're working through this much text, and it's not that much text, it's 16 verses, but I just want to say to you all, I'm, I'm just so thankful for you. Um, I was reflecting on our service today and thinking about just the amount of Bible that we have in our services, right? Like we're just reading a lot of Bible in our offering, in our, uh, in our prayer of confession, in our assurance of pardon, in, in, it's just a lot. And you all are here for it, and I'm thankful for that. Um, we are a people of God's word who want to embody God's word and live God's word in a world that desperately needs a word from God. Amen. So let's dive into God's word. John chapter 19. This is 19 verses or 16 verses. Uh, last week, Jesus and Pilate have a kind of conversation. One of the questions last week was, what is truth? And, um, and, and then we ended last week with Barabbas being released and Jesus uh, uh, essentially being kept. And so here we have John chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 16. We'll read the text and walk through it. It says, uh, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, 
Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The title of my sermon this morning is that appearances can be deceiving. A man named Franz Karl Mueller-Lyer, it's a big name, Franz Karl Mueller-Lyer, um, in 1889, uh, he created an optical illusion, which I always think is a fascinating thing to do, to create an optical illusion. The most popular version of this optical illusion, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, looks like this. Um, and it's got uh, what these straight lines on them, which are called uh, shafts. And then on the outside, you've got these little fins, shafts and fins. And this is called the Mueller-Lyer illusion. Because when you look at the Mueller-Lyer illusion, um, it looks pretty obvious that these lines are of different lengths. But in fact, all of the shafts, namely that center line, in all three lines are exactly the same. Now, when you look at it, you probably think that the middle one is the longest, and maybe there's a small, medium, and large, but those middle lines for all of those are exactly the same. The Mueller-Lyer illusion. In 1966, they wrote a paper about the Mueller-Lyer illusion where they showed this illusion to 17 different cultures, people from 17 different cultures. And they discovered that some cultures are more susceptible than others to being duped by this illusion. It turns out that the environment that you grow up in impacts your ability to see this. In fact, those who grew up in European and American cities have a much higher percentage of looking at this and being fooled by it than those who grew up in non-European cities because there's more rectangularity in the architecture of those cities, which leads you to be tricked more often. Two people can look at this same optical illusion, and one of them can go, yeah, I mean, it's obvious. Those three center lines are the same. But many people will look at it and go, what are you, crazy? That can't be the case. Two people looking at the same thing and seeing something different. The truth is, right, that those lines are actually the same length. And though it may appear one way, in truth it is another. In John chapter 19, we see this, uh, this picture of these two people. And we're supposed to see that there's a massive difference between how things appear and how they actually are. Our goal is to see things in reality and not in mere appearance. And so this morning, we're not going to look at these lines. We're instead going to look at these men, 
two men specifically. And at first glance, it really does look like one man holds all the authority and all of the power. And another man looks like a common criminal moving through a Roman justice system. But is that all that it seems? Here's our outline for this morning. I want to talk through these four points. Uh, The punishment of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, and finally the people and their response. So we'll begin to walk through this text together, and I want you to be looking at the text and seeing that John wants to ask you the question this morning, is what you're seeing everything that it seems to be? In verses 1 through 3, the text begins by declaring that Jesus is flogged for no reason. If you were here last week, you already know that Pilate believes that Jesus is innocent, and yet he has Jesus beaten. Pilate is a ruthless man. The soldiers twist a crown of thorns together and they put a purple robe on Jesus, a symbol of royalty. He is sort of dressed up as some sort of mock king. And then he is beaten repeatedly as people begin to say, Hail, King of the Jews to him, and strike him with their hands. Pilate knows that Jesus had been called king of the Jews, and so he takes this as an opportunity to kind of mock Jesus. But I just want you to be clear. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and yet allows him to be repeatedly beaten. That's the kind of man Pilate is. He dresses this Jesus up in a a joke outfit And you're supposed to kind of look at Jesus with the crown of thorns on his head and the purple robe and the soldiers mocking, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And you're supposed to ask yourself the question, Is he really a king? Who is the king? From every appearance at that particular moment, it appears that Jesus is not a king. But appearances can be deceiving. Jesus is punished, and he's innocent. He's mocked, and he's beaten. And Pilate knows this and allows it to happen. Who is this beaten, mocked, crown of thorns wearing, purple robe wearing man? Well, that leads us into verses 4 through 7. And the perfection, that first point was quick. We're into the perfection. In verse 5, Jesus is then brought out, and he's wearing this crown and robe. He's got a crown of suffering, a crown of blood. There's this question that begins to percolate in us, which is, if Jesus is a king, what sort of king is this? Well, Christians have always said that Jesus is a king, and not just that he is a king, but he is a suffering king. Christians have always claimed that Jesus' power is demonstrated in his suffering on the cross. That his power is actually greater because he chooses to lay himself down for a sinful humanity. I don't know how much familiarity you have with philosophy. One of the great atheistic philosophers of all time is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche hated Christianity. He hated Christianity really because of this reason. He sees Pilate, Nietzsche sees Pilate as the greatest figure in the Bible. 
Because he thinks that the notion that any sort of group of people would celebrate weakness is just pure foolishness. Nietzsche believed that everything at its core could be reduced to power. And here come these groups of Christians who are declaring that this Jesus, this beaten down, mocked, crown of thorns wearing, made fun of, flogged Jesus, that in this weakness there is actually great power. One of the questions that tugs at our hearts is, what is more powerful? Is it more powerful to take control and to use all of the strength that you have for your own benefit? Or is it possible that the greatest demonstration of power that has ever been shown in the history of the world is that God, out of love for us, decided not to ask any of us to pay for our own sins, but instead offered himself up, emptying himself of all of his power, becoming weak, and then dying on a cross out of love for sinful humanity. Some people hear that story and say foolishness. Others of us hear that story and we declare, truly that is the very power of God. Pilate stands before them and reminds them that Jesus is innocent. And he says, behold the man, look at the man. Do you see the man, the true man, the one who shows us humanity, the one who reveals the destiny of God's people? That's not what Pilate thinks, but that's what we see when we look at Jesus. And my question for you this morning is when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see weakness and foolishness? Maybe you do. The people who should have responded rightly in this moment would be the priests. Because the priests should have been anticipating for a long time that the Messiah was going to come. And that the Messiah was going to be able to, uh, he, was, he was going to drive together God's people and deal with their greatest enemy. But they were misguided in seeing how that would actually happen. They don't see it. And so in verse 6, with less than ideal attitudes, they shout, crucify, crucify. Pilate was fine with having Jesus beaten and tortured, but he is not ready to have him crucified. And so he responds sarcastically. Pilate's response to the Jews is, if, if you want to crucify him, why don't you crucify him? Because he knows that they can't. And then they respond with a claim in verse 7. The heart of the matter comes forward. They said, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now this word, son of God, has a particular meaning. And it has a meaning in the gospel of John. In John chapter 5, which is chapters ago, 14 of them, Jesus heals a man by the pool on the Sabbath. And he is given a lot of pushback for this healing. I mean, he's not supposed to heal people on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for resting, not for healing people. And if you think that's silly, so does God. <laughs> After Jesus received so much criticism, it says in John chapter 5 that this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds in verse 17 of John 5 and says, my father is working until now, and I am working. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's John 15, verse 18. Can we agree that there's nothing wrong with claiming to be God if you're God? But can we agree that there's something very wrong claiming to be God if you're not? I have three sons. All three of my sons get their nature from me. The worst parts of themselves they get from me. Maybe a, a smidge from my wife, but mostly me. My, my kids, my point is that my sons are my sons and they carry my nature. Here, Jesus is accused of calling God his own father in such a way that their perception in John 5 is that he is making himself equal with God. He is saying that him and God share a nature. He was claiming, Jesus was, to be God in a way that no one had ever claimed before. He was making himself equal with God. And so back here in John chapter 19, the bloodthirsty crowd claims Jesus is not who he claims to be. We want him dead. Why? Because he's claiming he's God. That's the question for us. I wish if I could just put a question in your back pocket that would irritate you. The rest of the week, the question would just be, is Jesus who he says he is? Because on some level, to be a Christian is just to be someone who says, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that he's perfectly innocent. I believe he's perfectly sinless. I believe he is perfectly God. I believe he is who he says he is. And that's why I'm a Christian. One of the reasons I came to faith growing up was because I wrestled with that very question. Jesus had laid out this moral standard. I think almost everybody today would argue that no person has given the world a greater way of living than Jesus of Nazareth. But if you want to get into Jesus of Nazareth, if you want to study him and spend time with him, you'll soon discover he spends a lot of time talking about himself. And not just talking about himself, but claiming that he is God which then forces you into this question, which is like, I don't know, the way he's calling me to live seems so right at the core of my being, and at the same time, he's claiming to be God. And the more seriously you take both of those claims, the more you will either want to crown him as truly God, or the more you will say crucify him. For what kind of man claims to be God? What kind of deceiver would do that? Is Jesus who he says he is? What do you see when you look at him? Well, this moves us into the next section, the patience. After Pilate hears that they're claiming that Jesus is the son of God and making himself equal with God, Pilate is even more afraid. Now, Pilate had dealt with innocent people before, but this innocent man was claiming to be God in the flesh. So he asks a very odd question of Jesus. He says in verse 9, where, 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 where do you come from? 
Where are you from? He senses in this moment, Pilate does, that Jesus is more than just he appears to be. That the reality is different from the appearance. And maybe this will be a good time for Jesus to win Pilate over to his side. But Jesus keeps silent. Verse 9, Jesus gave Pilate no answer. Pilate is flummoxed. He's taken aback by Jesus' non-response. Pilate is used to people begging for mercy. He's used to people who are terrified and afraid, crying out to him for mercy. And yet here in a strange moment, John wants you to see that it is not Jesus who it is afraid, but Pilate. And Jesus is not begging for mercy. Jesus is quiet. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the Messiah and said that he was afflicted, yet he not he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. When you read Isaiah 53, we're reminded of this moment where Jesus stays quiet. The normal way for a prisoner is to be afraid, but with Jesus it's different. He's not begging. Who has the true power in this dynamic? Is it Pilate? Is Pilate in the position of power? Or is it Jesus? In verse 10, Pilate tries to get a hold of the situation. And he says, do you refuse to speak to me? And Jesus responds. After Pilate says, I have the power, Jesus, to set you free or to crucify you. I have the power, Pilate says. I wonder if he's wondering if he believes his own rhetoric. The human looking down on God and saying, I'm in control. Human power trying to rule over God. One of my favorite things in spending time with this text, I'm just going to take you on a real quick side quest. In Psalm chapter 2, An old psalm, um, it opens this way. It says, why do the nations, and by nations it means Gentiles, why do the Gentiles' nations, why why do they rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens, God, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, the reason I quote to you Psalm 2, why do they plot against God and God just sits there and laughs? Why does that happen? Is because in just a few years after this happens, Peter and John, two disciples of Jesus, are going to be arrested. And after they are arrested, they end up being set free. They're experiencing tremendous persecution. And when the early church hears that Peter and John have been persecuted by the chief priests and the elders, they hear about it. They lift up their voices in prayer. In Acts chapter 4, they pray this prayer. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, This is Acts 4, 24 and following. 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They quote Psalm 2 in this persecution, and then they say, Acts 4.27, For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Gentiles, peoples of Israel, do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The early church, when they think about what's happening with Pilate and Jesus in the text we're looking at, they think of Psalm 2. They think of why do the nations raise? Why does God sort of chuckle when people are like, I've got more power than you, God. Why does that happen? Because they fail to recognize that God the whole time has predestined this to take place. The question with Pilate and Jesus is, Who thinks they have the power? Pilate does. Who thinks they're in control? Pilate does. Who is actually in control? Jesus is. It only looks like Pilate is. Pilate thinks he has authority, but Jesus says in verse 11, you wouldn't even have power if it wasn't given to you. From above. Jesus tells Pilate the reality of the appearance. Pilate thought he was in charge. He was pulling the strings. He was making things happening. But Jesus and the Bible teaches that he's only acting according to what God had decided beforehand would happen. He is only in this position because God has allowed it to happen. Hear hear this. Put this together. In any moment in your life, when it begins to feel like human power has the rule, when it begins to feel like you are on the opposite side and wickedness is against you and suffering is all that you know, when it appears in any way, shape, or form that the power of evil is winning in your life, in your workplace, in your family, in our culture, anywhere, you need to be reminded, in the end, it is God who has authority and scoffs at humanity's weakness. The powers of evil thought that they could win. But in the end, they are serving the very will of God. I, sometimes you hit things, and I just, I just feel like if you get this, like if you get this, this will change everything for you. But like you, you've got to get this. In Acts, they are persecuted. And they think of Psalm 2, they think of Pilate, right? And what do they say? They say, Pilate and Herod, they conspired against Jesus, but they were only doing what Jesus had predestined them to do. It looks like they're in control. God is really in control. So then what do they ask for in Acts 4.29? What do we ask for when we experience persecution? God, please 
deliver us from this persecution. God, please relieve us from the pressure we're experiencing. God, please make things easier for us. That's what we pray. What do they pray? Acts 4.29, after they talk through Psalm 2, Jesus is in charge, what do they say? They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. How on earth do you get to the place where you experience pressure and respond with, God, give us boldness? How do you do that when you're thrown in prison and you say, God, give us more courage? You have to believe that no matter what you're facing, you are always standing under the control of Almighty God. You've got to believe that your God is bigger than any sort of obstacle that you face. And if you get that, you will be the kind of witness in a world that will cause people to go, where do you get this unshakable faith from? And the answer will be, I know it looks like things aren't going well, but God is still in control. Their conclusion is, God, give us great boldness. All opposition is ultimately under the Father's control who will work things to his will and his way. He has overcome the world. Therefore, you do not need to be afraid. I'm afraid. You're afraid. We're all afraid. But we don't have to be afraid anymore. The power that brought Jesus to glory watches over us. And the powerlessness of Pilate ultimately is clear. Verse 12. And finally, the people. Focus on the people. From then on, Pilate tries to set Jesus free, but he can't. And the people said, if you let him go, you're, not, you're no friend of Caesar. Which is their way of saying, the people are saying, people are saying, if you let Jesus go, you're with Jesus, not with Caesar. Because Jesus is calling himself a king, and so we say that makes him an enemy of Caesar. Pilate, whose side are you on? Your boss's side or Jesus' side? Whose side are you on? Are you, with, are you with Caesar, his rule, his reign, his government? Are you, are you with him or are you with Jesus? Well, Pilate, he really wants the approval of Caesar in Rome more than he wants the approval of his father in heaven. So what does he do? He cowers to them. Can we acknowledge that wanting people's approval never really works in the end? Certainly doesn't here. Pilate ends up being a coward. He wants to let Jesus go, but he won't. He cares too much about what Caesar's going to think about him. Cares too much about his job. Cares too much about his future. He is sort of taken aback by this thorn-crowned, robed, suffering king who seems to just be in control, making these incredible claims. So what does he do? He sits down in verse 13 to judge Jesus. Again, who's the judge is the question John wants you to ask. Who's the judge? It looks like Pilate's the judge. But Jesus is the one who will one day sit and judge all. He is the judge. So Pilate is judging the judge. And that's no position you want to be in. Pilate, weak, controlled by the crowd, 
It's still before noon, verse 14. Pilate turns to the audience and says, Behold, your king. And again, he speaks more than he knows. Behold, your king. And the people heard that and said, That's not our king. That's not our king. That's not our king. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate says, Should I crucify your king? And they say, We have no king but Caesar. This morning, as we close, I want to invite you to look at Jesus and then to look at Pilate. Because I want to argue this morning Pilate is a terrible lesson. He stands before Jesus as the typical unbelieving human. Sometimes his posture before Jesus is cruelty. Sometimes Pilate asks Jesus questions he doesn't really want the answers to. We do that before God sometimes. Sometimes he acts like he's in charge. Sometimes he thinks he gets to judge God. Walking around like, I get to judge God. Is there anyone in here who's like Pilate? Have you come to see who Jesus really is? That he is the real king? That he is in charge? That he is in control? That he is the judge? And that he gets to judge you in the end? Don't be like Pilate. Do not allow others to determine what you'll do with Jesus. The devil and the worries of this world will attempt to rob you of seeing things clearly. But Jesus is king. His throne is a cross. He's raised on the third day. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is the man. He is the king. He is our God. And your destiny depends on him. The appearance of our life in this world, thinking about appearances all the time, it will lead us down the path of the world. But Jesus shows us reality, the future reality that we live for. And so, yes, we will stand against the powers of this age. And we will face opposition. And we will pray like the apostles. That God would enable us to speak his word with greater boldness. Amen? If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I pray that you take a good look at him. For the God who made the world is holy. And he does have a standard, and you cannot pay it on your own. And that same God who is a God of justice is a God of love, who pays your sins for you. That if you repent and turn to him and trust in him, he forgives you and makes you new. And you can have peace with God. Be the kind of person who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, and you'll have eternity with God forever. Let's pray. Father, we look in our lives sometimes, and it looks like things are horrible. Uh, it looks like evil is winning. It looks like the powerful and the wicked are ruling. It looks like 
we're in trouble. It looks like all is not as it should be. And at the same time, we recognize that when we read John 19, we see what clearly looks like, God, you losing, only to discover that you use this for your victory. The world sees a cross and says, that's weakness, and that's, that symbolizes losing. And we look at the same cross and say, that's winning, and that's victory. Because that cross leads to that tomb, and that tomb is empty, and Christ is King and Lord. And we put our trust in him. And so this morning, would you give us eyes to see Pilate as he is, Jesus as he is. Would you give us courage to speak boldly? Would you give us courage to trust you when it feels like everything's against us? Would you give us the ability to be a faithful people who hope in you when everything seems difficult? Give us the courage to forgive, the courage to follow you when it costs us something, the courage to speak for you when it's difficult, the courage to trust in you when everything feels against us. The courage to believe that your hand right now in the midst of our pain is working. And that you always keep your promises. You are God. You are in control. Help us to see Christ as the exalted king. Behold the man. Behold the king. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's in your name we